on this episode of Why Watch That. He does things in the courtroom you will not believe. It's unbelievable watching it, that this actually occurred. So this man is definitely off his rocker. This is one of the most powerful moments in the movie when Bobby Seale has had enough and the judge says, you've got to be quiet. Bobby Seale will not. What does the judge do to get him to be quiet? They are pranksters. They're jokesters. They don't take anything seriously, but they're very smart. Now, of course, Sasha Baron Cohen plays the one who's really the jokester. Vanessa Williams has Uh-oh. a <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Of course she does. Let's get that right. And Anna, by the way, wants to be on-air talent. And Zora's like, well, that hair. (laughs) Put that girl in a very hairy situation. Oh, oh, I'm here all day. And you can, you can enjoy, you know, it's, it's, it's a shaggy business we're in, you know, I tell you. Um. Why Watch That is a podcast featuring the critic and referee who go head-to-head on a quest to discover the best movies and TV shows Hollywood has to offer. Expect the unexpected from the critic. While nothing gets past the ref. We do all the work. So you don't have to. Welcome Welcome to to Why Watch Watch That. This episode of Why Watch That is supported by Entrepreneur Meal Plan. It helps leaders and professionals feed their bodies and businesses well. You know, Critic, I got Mm. a chance to attend a wonderful event by EMP here Uh in Los Angeles. And it was so amazing because Brandy Cochran was able to gather people from all sorts of walks of life. We were able to gather together, have real talk, and some real good food too. Mm -hmm. It was a hit. It's food for the soul and the body, which is so hard to find. So if you want to learn more about Entrepreneur Meal Plan, whether you're an entrepreneur or not, go to entrepreneurmealplan.com. All right, everybody, we do have a first look at a film that's now available on Netflix. Uh, This is The Critic Alone Again, while the ref is on vacation. By the way, after this first look, we will have a sneak peek of a new movie that both Areth and I will talk about. Okay, so that's coming up next. For now, first look at the trial of the Chicago Seven. A why watch that first look? Again, this is already available on Netflix. It is written and directed by the great Aaron Sorkin. It is starring a whole bunch of people you know, either by name and or by sight. Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Sasha Baron Cohen is in this, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Keaton shows up, Frank Langella, oh my goodness, wait till you see him, John Carroll Lynch, Eddie Redmayne, Mark Rylance, Jeremy Strong, and so on and so forth. Now, this is based on true events, a true trial that uh, commenced in 1969. So here's what happened. In 1968, we had, of course, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And there were protests, anti-Vietnam War, and so on. So what happened as a result of this was there was, of course, a confrontation with the cops. Sound familiar? Now, as a result of this, uh, 
President Johnson's administration decided, no dice, we're not going to prosecute. Why? Why did they decide that? Hmm? Why did the attorney general do that? Now, you know what happened if you know your history after 1968. Richard Nixon won the presidency. And of course, the president takes over in January of the next year. So in 1969, the new Richard Nixon administration decides we're going to prosecute these people and we're going to prosecute particular ones who came to be known as the Chicago Seven. Now, really, there were eight. So I'll get into that. Now, the seven are Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, Lee Weiner, John Freund's, Bobby Seale. Now, that's the eight. Bobby Seale was not included in the Chicago Seven. Why not? Now, what we find out is this. The federal prosecutors... Joseph Gordon-Levitt plays one of them, Richard Schultz. J.C. McKenzie plays the other, Tom Foran. They're not quite seeing eye to eye. When Richard's called into the new attorney general's office, he's like, um, we declined to prosecute these people, and here's why. And the new attorney general looks at him and goes, uh, this is the Nixon administration, thank you. Okay, so what's that like for Richard as the one who really has to prosecute the case? Tom doesn't do that. He's not the one standing up in the courtroom. Hmm. Interesting. Now, on the other side, the defense counsel, played by Mark Rylance and Ben Shankman. Now, their two characters' names, their uh, the real guys' names, are William Kunstler and Leonard Wineglass. So are they fighting an uphill battle? Because the judge is played by the great Frank Langella, And this is Judge Julius Hoffman. And Julius Hoffman, this judge, has a big problem with all of the defendants, the counsel, everybody over there whatsoever. He does things in the courtroom you will not believe. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable watching it, that this actually occurred. So this man is definitely off his rocker. What's going on there? Everything he does helps the federal prosecutors, essentially. He even prejudices the jury at times. I mean, this is this is crazy. So most of this movie is focused on what happens in the courtroom. However, we do see some of the events that lead up in flashbacks. We also see uh, how these defendants are handling the case as time wears on, because this goes into 1970. Okay. Now, when it comes to Mr. Bobby Seale, he is the only one who's in in jail during this trial. Why not? He couldn't meet bail. Why couldn't he get bail? The other seven are out there, have bail. They get to strategize together and so on. Also, while the Chicago Seven are represented by Kunstler and Wineglass, Bobby Seale is not. He has his own lawyer, but his lawyer is ill, not able to make it to court. He tells the judge this on numerous times, every time he can. And he's in contempt. Everybody's in contempt at some point on the defendant's side, essentially. So, okay, even at one point, he's like, look, I want to represent myself. That is my constitutional right. The judge doesn't allow it. The judge won't even allow him to speak. So what occurs as a result of that clash? Now, 
I'll tell you right now, this is one of the most powerful moments in the movie when Bobby Seal has had enough and the judge says, you've got to be quiet. Bobby Seal will not. What does the judge do to get him to be quiet? It involves the cops. I'll tell you that. And it is so disturbing. So very disturbing, um, upsetting, all of those kinds of words, um, echoing what's going on right now, of course. Another of the strong moments here involves David Dellinger, played by John Carroll Lynch. Uh, David Dellinger is a pacifist. No fighting whatsoever. He even abstained a conscientious objector to World War II. Which is like, I mean, people are looking at him like, hey, I mean, come on, World War II? But that's who this guy was. So there's another moment after the Bobby Seale moment with him that's also very upsetting very moving. So the reason I'm going to those two moments is this. Aaron Sorkin is known for writing, like writing dialogue, a lot of dialogue. We have a lot of that, a lot of speaking. You get that from uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's character here, uh, who is just, he and um, he and Jeremy Strong's characters, Abby Hoffman and, and Jerry Rubin, who were the yippies. They were the leaders of the Youth International Party. They are pranksters, they're jokesters, they don't take anything seriously, but they're very smart. Now, of course, Sasha Baron Cohen plays the one who's really the jokester, Abby, and he, during the trial, goes out and, and does kind of stand up on it. And Jerry's more of the hothead between the two. So what are they like in the courtroom, outside of the courtroom? A lot of lines coming, especially from Sasha, who does what Sasha does. Like, Sasha can do this stuff in his sleep. We also have Eddie Redmayne's character, Tom Hayden, who was the leader of the Students for a Democratic Society. Now, he's the one who's not a hothead. He's the one who's like, look, we've got to get people uh, elected. That's how you get change. You you affect it via uh, the courtroom system. You affect it via political systems and things like that. He's a traditionalist. He thinks that all of this uh, disrespectful rhetoric and joking is not good. He says it will not stand the test of time. People will look back on us and just see the ridiculousness, not take us seriously. He has an agenda that he wants to enact, and it's via the political system in his opinion. So Tom Hayden has a lot to say as well. So this is where Sorkin's writing comes in. But I will have to say that this is a film. It is not TV. Now, Aaron Sorkin, if you don't know, was the creator of of course, The West Wing, which is some of the most beautiful writing we've ever had on television, uh, among other things. He wrote A Few Good Men, that movie. Uh, he did The Newsroom on TV. He won an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for The Social Network. This man knows how to write, okay? He adapted To Kill a Mock Mockingbird for Broadway, and so on and so forth. But the thing is, if we're gonna have all of Sorkin's writing, then it has to be great. Because remember, this is a movie. We can see what's going on. Uh, for instance, Molly's Gang, which he wrote, is an example of a film of his that the writing is good, but the execution isn't great. And that was his directorial debut as well. Now, keep in mind, he also not only wrote The Trial of the Chicago 7, but also directed it. And I think that it might benefit Aaron's writing if someone else directs it. I don't quite think he knows how to present his own writing, which is not uncommon. 
it's difficult to do both. Like these writer directors who do both well, I mean, that is a, a very rare skill. I think he needs someone else's ear on it, someone else in the editing bay, someone else who can bring all of it to life to make it sharper. Because it wasn't quite as sharp as it could have been. It was good, but it wasn't good enough. Because like I mentioned, the moment with Bobby Seale, that tragedy, that despicable action that happened, it wasn't based on lines. We saw it. We saw it. You might have to pause the movie after seeing this. I mean, really, you might. And then the moment with David Dellinger, not quite as impactful, of course, it, it wouldn't be able to be, but it had that same kind of feel because we were seeing it. And I think that if Aaron trusted more of the visual here and less of his writing, then this movie really would have been even better. I think as it is, um, in the early going, you're kind of watching, you're, if you don't know about this, you're learning, you're listening, and it's good, it's fine. Frank Langella is the judge, it's just completely ridiculous. I mean, it's outrageous. Outrageous Judge Julius Hoffman, yes. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, great casting decision here as, as the guy who's prosecuting but is not quite comfortable. You see the intelligence there. So I think the cast is good. The writing's good. It just isn't quite good enough to overcome what we could have seen instead of heard. But I think if you're interested in this, I would definitely say watch it. Again, it is on Netflix right now. I think it is certainly a worthy film. It's an important film. Um, some of the, the moments in here will stick with me. I'll give you that. Nothing here is bad. I just know that this could have been great and it wasn't just because it was overwritten. And if again, if you're going to overwrite, it better be brilliant writing. This isn't brilliant Aaron Sorkin. It's good Aaron Sorkin, which is better than most. But again, the visuals could have told more of the story. So that's my take on The Trial of the Chicago 7. Again, up next is our sneak peek of an important movie. You'll see where that is coming up. Why watch that sneak peek? Well, we have a sneak peek for you. Ooh, oh. Uh -oh. I feel like all of our sneak peeks are Netflix sneak peeks. <laughs> <laughs> but this one's on Hulu. <laughs> uh oh, oh, oh. See that? See that? Tricky, tricky. <laughs> we love it when we can get something else besides Netflix. Nothing wrong with that. However, if you're like, I have Hulu too, guess what? Bad Hair is coming to you mm. um, on October 23rd. And we talked about this, actually, Critic. It was um, something offered in, a, in whatever form, whether it was a talk or the actual whole showing, um, at Urban World Film Festival. And we promised you that we would give you a proper review of it. And here it is. <laughs> yeah. So Bad Hair is coming to us from Justin Simeon, who is the Dear White People film director, as well as the TV series. It is written by Justin. Ooh. Mm. And it stars a very interesting cast. And by interesting, I mean, you got all kinds of people showing up. You've got, let's just give some big names, and then we can go from there. We got Vanessa Williams showing up. We got Kelly Rowland showing up. We got Blair <laughs> Underwood. Usher's dipping in there uh michelle heard which i am a huge fan of her deron horton we got mc light make an appearance robin Thede, 
we also have Laverne Cox making her rounds. Jay Farrow. Um, just, just on and on. And there's some stars that I didn't mention that you will. Or at least what the world revolves around. Because, you know, all I, all I have to say is 12 years a slave. She's a slave to her hair. But here's the deal. This isn't your typical black movie about hair. We'll just say that much. <laughs> the critic is going to tell you there's a bit of a twist, no pun intended, to this hair mm. movie. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, this is a horror satire. That's really what it is. Oh, yeah, and um, it's set in 1989. And L. Lorraine, in the credits ref, they said introducing L. Lorraine. I was like, okay, well, introduce her. Wait, isn't she, wasn't she in 12 Years a Slave? I don't know. But no. I mean, this is not like the first thing that she's done. I mean, she was she's like been in an episode of Insecure and things like that. Um, All right. No, she wasn't in 12 Years a Slave, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she was in Insecure. She did an episode there. She, I think she did some stuff for Boomerang on BET. She did. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So introducing her as Anna, the lead character. And in the beginning, we see she's a kid and she's getting her hair permed for the first time. Ooh. And her sister or cousin, I should say, is doing it. Mm. Now, if you know anything That's about first perms, mm-hmm. you know, you got to be really careful. OK, they weren't using just for me. so that experience leads Anna to never having her hair done again so she's now grown up and she has a career at um, a network called Culture Okay. and Culture you know it it gives basically black music videos it's like what BET used to be okay and one major video that's playing is an artist that's reminiscent of Janet Jackson Okay. And this artist is played by Kelly Rowland. And <laughs> her boyfriend, who's also in the video, is played by Usher. Yes. Of course. That makes sense. Of course. Of course. And th- I mean, this is like literally what you would have seen in the 80s from a music video. Like all of that stuff. The hair. And they're looking at her hair going, oh, you know, what is that? Oh, I, you know, it's a weave. This is new terminology. A weave? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How do you get one? And so on and so forth. Now, at Culture, there has been a change in the guard. The former head of the network is leaving. James Vanderbeek plays really the, the, the suit. He comes in and announces this, and they look at him like, huh? And uh, of course, you know, the whole time, um, Anna, because of her hair, it's natural. She has natural hair in 1989. Okay, that is bold. All right. And people notice. Not in a good way. James Vanderbeek's character notices all kinds of people notice. So he comes in to announce the new head of culture, who's played by Vanessa Williams. Now, Vanessa Williams has <laughs> Okay. <laughs> of course she does. Let's get that right. And she says to them in her opening speech to the, the whole team, she's like, look, I know you know me as a model. But I've been working toward this my whole life. It's it's really funny. It's like, and Vanessa Williams just doesn't, Vanessa Williams. Like, it's, yeah, right, this is right. what it is. You know, everybody knows. And the question is, though, for the people who were under this previous boss, are they going to keep their jobs? Because Lena Waithe's character, 
she's like, uh-uh, wait a minute, hold on, but pump your brakes. What is going on? Am I going to still have a job? And others as well. So there really is, there's a trio of friends who work there and are like, uh-oh, this is not going to be good. We were supposed to have job security. Is that going to continue? Now, what happens is Vanessa Williams' character, Zora, she interviews all of the current employees to see whether they're going to stay or go and if they're going to stay where they're going to go. So Anna has been expecting a raise. She's an executive assistant, but Zora already has an executive assistant. Where is she going to go? Well, she comes in with an interesting idea for Zora and Zora looks at her and goes, hmm, all right, let's see. And Anna, by the way, wants to be on-air talent. And Zora's like, well, that hair. Uh." (laughs) Now, Zora's executive assistant helps a girl out. She says, look at here, Anna. You need to go to this place and get it done. This is what Zora expects. And this place has one of the head people, experts in doing weaves at this time, played by Laverne Cox. So Anna goes in there, but will she be seen? How much does it cost to get a weave? I'll tell you, $450 in 1989. Woo! Now, Anna can't even pay her rent. Let's get this straight. And the other thing is, Anna's uh, family, her uncle, is played by Blair Underwood. Now, this is a man who is into Black history, especially into African and Native American mythology. And he says, look, these aren't myths. These are the things that helped us pass on culture and knowledge that was stolen by the white man. Mm -hmm. So how does all of this play in? Well, there is a myth surrounding hair and it ain't the hair you grow. So what does that myth have to do with the experience of Anna? Well, we see when she's meeting with Zora, something's up with Zora's hair. I won't tell you what, but it's like, at first you're like, wait a minute, did I just see what I just saw? Yes. And so what happens when Anna gets this weave? How does the weave interact? How does this hair say, okay, you want me to give you this new career? Well, what am I going to get in return? Is it something like Little Shop of Horrors? Now, in the end, the question, of course, is does... (laughs) <laughs> Anna achieved the heights that she wants to achieve. Little hair shop of horrors you meant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Anna. will she be left standing, right? I mean, this is a horror satire. And here's my review. All right. For about an hour, ref. I was entertained because this movie works best as a satire. And like some of the stuff, like Justin, all of us, we know what was going on in the 80s when it comes to black you know, music videos and black culture and hair and all of those comments were there. And it was, there were moments when I actually laughed. I did actually laugh. Um, and by the way, Justin did write some of the songs. The songs that Kelly Rowland sings, he wrote. It's just like 80s music. It's just straight out of the book. And the whole thing about how your hair, how people interact with you based on your hair, like all of that was great. Cause even while Anna, is dealing with this problem with this weave she has on. And, and, you know, it's affecting her personality and it's causing other things that I didn't give away. People are looking at her going, you look great though. (laughs) I mean, you look great. You know, she's getting all she wants from this hair, but what's the cost? When it gets into a problem is toward the end when it shifts to more horror and loses the satire. Mm. That was the issue. 
It's better as a satire. The horror, because the effects are not scary, it's comical. When it goes straight on horror, it just, it loses the, the magic it had. Right. But I'll say, if you're interested and you have Hulu, some of it you'll be amused by and entertained by. Some of it you'll go, hmm. But hey, it is called Bad Hair. Well, it looks like, you know, put that girl in a very hairy situation. Oh, 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 I'm here all day. <laughs> On Hulu, October 23rd. And you can, you Shameless. can enjoy, you know, it's, it's, it's a shaggy business we're in, you know, I tell you. Um, <laughs> you, I have to stop before it really gets, you know, it, it really gets disheveled. So um, October 23rd, you can check out Bad Hair if you dare. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, visit whywatchthat.com. Good idea. And we'd love to hear from you. So go ahead and leave comments, feedback, and you can rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next week. See you.